Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host, and for today's episode, a bit of love that goes beyond the boundaries of class. That's right, today I will be discussing D.H. Lawrence's 1928 novel, Lady Chatley's Lover. But before I dive into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments something to highlight from the week past. And this week, a bit of a trip down memory lane. I watched the other night, and I have no idea why. I think it was because Notre Dame was in the news for something, for for something that I didn't actually read, but I, I just saw it. And so I ended up watching The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney film from 1996. And, oh my God, I there's something so fun about watching these sort of children's films that you grew up with. But now, as an adult, so many there's so many adult themes that no, 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 not like that, you dirty little bastard. No, don't get sexual. Get your mind out of the gutter. I mean more the socio-political aspects of the nationalistic French against the Romani people. It sets the stage for this really dark story that you know. And look, I know it's I I know I'm sort of speaking here from a position that it's a kid's film, but I know it's, of course, based off a book that I I have not read. Uh, I, I, I tried to once, and I just didn't. Uh, I think I got, like, 50 pages in, and it just was not clicking with me, so I don't know. Maybe I'll go back and give it a go one day. Not, not anytime soon, though. But it's also just other references as well you don't get as a kid. Like, the horse is called Achilles, so he says Achilles heel, and it's just like, oh, that's funny. Uh, there's there's some Shakespeare. I think it's the Merchant of Venice is referenced in here. The Wizard of Oz is, is is referenced as well. So it's just kind of fun things like that that are, are, are quite nice Easter eggs and give you a whole new, fresh, rich experience many years after watching it. So take this as a sign to, I don't know, go back and watch your favourite films. It's not my favourite Disney film, to be fair. Uh, I think that is and always will be Treasure Planet because that is phenomenal and that is based off a well it's based off another great book actually treasure treasure island uh by robert louis stevenson so i don't know maybe i'll have to do that book as well because that was that's that's a fantastic read sorry i'm getting so sidetracked today sorry 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 housekeeping as always all the scripts from the episodes are available on the website just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod so head along they're all free for use for all to enjoy the link should be in the bio to the episode. Okay, well enough of the chit-chat. Let's get down and dirty with the book that has been banned, burned, and censored numerous times since its initial publication in 1928 for being salacious, spicy, and downright sexy. I'm talking about none other than Lady Chatterley's lover. Now, that, I mean, that takes the piss a bit, but The book being banned was actually no joke. This book was genuinely banned, but it gets better. The book, the book itself was kind of taken to court. And by that, I mean, Penguin Books Limited was taken to court for publishing this book in a very famous case of R versus Penguin Books Limited, 
And just in case you were wondering, as a side note, the R stands for either Rex or Regina, depending on who is the monarch at the time. Rex for king and Regina for queen, so in this case it's the late Queen Elizabeth II, so it would have been Regina. Penguin Books was prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act 1959, and interestingly, within this legislation, you could evade conviction if it was proven that the work provided some intellectual, scientific, or literary contributions to the overall public good. The trial took place over six days, and the trial itself exposed a few issues with society, such as this by the prosecution. This is, this is a quote. Is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read? That line, you know, the reference to servants, highlighted just how out of touch the upper-class establishments were in the, even in the 1960s in England. And so luckily on the 2nd of November, the verdict was not guilty and Penguin Books was allowed to proceed. Now, this is quite crazy. The first day of legal publication, they sold 200,000 copies and went on to sell 3 million in three months, which is absolutely phenomenal and a testament to just how powerful this book was and felt throughout society. But then again, maybe it was all just a ruse to drum up sales, in which case that person who, who came up with that campaign pitch needs a raise. So this novel has been the subject of much debate and analysis, and even after almost a century, it comes to captivate readers and provoke discussion about sex, love, class, and censorship. So now, I think a little overview of the story so we can place it contextually in our minds so that as I move forward with the story, you can follow along if you haven't read it. Lady Chatterley's Lover tells the story of Lady Constance Chatterley, a wealthy, educated woman who is married to Clifford Chatterley, a paralysed war veteran who is emotionally and sexually distant from his wife. Frustrated with her loveless marriage, Lady Chatterley begins an affair with Olive Mellors, the estate gamekeeper. At around 380 pages, it's a decent-sized story, but that is the general crux of it. Now, the novel is often remembered for its explicit sexual content, but it is much more than that. It is a deeply psychological exploration of human desire, passion, and the need for connection. And Lawrence is masterful because the story is a reflection on the changing social and cultural norms of the early 20th century and the struggle between tradition and modernity. At its core, Lady Chatterley's Lover is a love story, but it's not a conventional one. It challenges the societal norms of its time by depicting a sexual relationship between a member of the aristocracy and the working class man. Lawrence was well aware of the controversy that his novel would generate, and he wrote it as a deliberate challenge to the prevailing moral and social values of the time. Lawrence firmly believed that sex was a fundamental aspect of human nature, and he saw the suppression of sexual desire as a form of oppression. He also believed that the social hierarchy of his time was unjust, and the people should be free to love and be loved without the constraints of class. In Lady Chatterley's Lover, Lawrence portrays two main characters, Lady Chatterley and Mellors as the two people who were deeply unhappy and unfulfilled in their lives. Lady Chatterley is trapped in a loveless marriage, and Mellors is haunted by his past and his inability to connect with others. Now, it's often portrayed as this overtly sexual book, but the relationship between these two is not just physical. It's emotional and intellectual. They find in each other a kindred spirit, someone who understands and accepts them for who they are. Through their relationship, Lawrence explores the complex dynamic of power, gender, and class, and he challenges the traditional notions of masculinity and femininity. One of the reasons I think this novel was and is and will continue to be an, be 
as important is because it treats the characters like humans, which might sound perhaps a little simple, but take for example Lady Chatterley. She is not just a passive object of desire, she is an active participant in her relationship with Millers. She is not afraid to express her desires and take control of her sexuality. Mellers, on the other hand, is not just the stereotypical alpha male. He is sensitive, vulnerable, and in touch with his emotions. Through the characters of Lady Chatterley and Mellers, Lawrence presents an alternative vision of masculinity and femininity, one that is not based on societal expectations, but on individual choice and freedom. I'll be honest though, I, I didn't dislike the character of the hunt's husband, Clifford Chatterley. I felt a lot of sympathy for him. I, th I think throughout the story he might be perceived as sort of, I guess, the loose villain of this story, and fair enough because he does say some pretty horrible things, especially towards the back end, and ends up acting quite poorly, but I saw all this from a position of pain. He is an upper class man paralysed in the war physically, and that affects his sexual capabilities. And why you might think boohoo, a rich upper class man is disabled. I think there is some sadness in it because his reaction highlights generations of people raised to believe money is everything and it is only when you realise money can't solve everything do you understand its value. This book is a tender portrayal that relationship is made up of the duality of both the emotional and the physical and he can't give one so stifles the other. And I think that plays into the larger beauty of the novel. There is no right and wrong as much as there isn't a good and bad. There is just the flaws of all the characters and everyone is struggling with something. But Lady Chatterley's Lover is not just a novel about personal fulfilment, it's also a novel about social change. Lawrence was acutely aware of the social and political upheavals of his time, and he saw the traditional aristocracy as a symbol of the oppression forces that were holding back progress and stifling individual freedom. In Lady Chatterley's Lover, Lawrence uses the characters of Sir Clifford to represent the old order and he shows how his paralysis and impotence are symbolic of the impotence of the ruling class in face of social change. At the same time, Lawrence was also critical of the emerging industrial society that was replacing the old order. He saw the mechanisation of society as a threat to the natural world and to human relationships, and he believed that the only way to counteract this threat was to embrace our own authenticity and to live in harmony with nature. This book is its an incredibly rich story, and it's swept along by Lawrence's wonderful writing style. He goes in for these wonderfully long, florid passages that he pieces together like individual brushstrokes of an artist. I have a quote that does this quite nicely, to showcase what I'm saying. Now, apologies, it is quite a long quote, but I'm not really that sorry, because it sort of sums up everything I'm saying with the florid writing style mixed with the sexual nature of the story. It, it, it is quite explicit, so consider that while listening into how this idea of being too sexual fed to the book being banned itself. So here's the quote. His body was urgent against her, and she didn't have the heart anymore to fight. She saw his eyes, tense and brilliant, fierce, not loving, but her will had left her. A strange weight was on her limbs. She was giving way. She was giving up. She had to lie down there under the burrows of the tree, like an animal, while he waited, standing there in his shirt and breeches, watching her with haunted eyes. He too had bared the front part of his body, and she felt his naked flesh against her as he came into her. For a moment he was still inside her, turgid there and quivering. Then, as he began to move in the sudden helpless orgasm, there awoke in her new strange thrills, rippling inside her. Rippling, 
rippling, rippling, like a flapping overlapping of soft flames, soft as feathers, running to the points of brilliance, exquisite and melting her all molten inside. It was like bells rippling up and up to a culmination. She lay unconscious of the wild little cries she uttered at the last. But it was over too soon, too soon, and she could no longer force her own conclusion with her own activity. This was different, different. She could do nothing. She could no longer harden and grip for her own satisfaction upon him. She could only wait. Wait and mourn in spirit, and she felt him withdrawing withdrawing and contracting, coming to the terrible moment when he would slip out of her and be gone, whilst all her womb was open and soft, and softly clamouring like a sea anemone under the tide, clamouring for him to come in again and make fulfilment of her. She clung to him unconscious in passion, and he never quite slipped from her, and she felt the soft bud of him within her stirring, and strange rhythms flushing up into her with a strange rhythmic growing motion swelling and swelling till it filled all with her cleaving consciousness and then began again the unspeakable motion that was not really motion but pure deepening whirlpools of sensation swirling deeper and deeper through all her tissue and consciousness till she was one perfect concentric fluid of feeling and she lay there crying in unconscious inarticulate cries now oh, what a passage to get through that's that's actually quite tough to read i'm not gonna lie especially out loud it's sort of much easier to read something as soon as you have to say it out loud it becomes a lot more wordy in your mouth a lot of words stick in your mouth there it was it, it was tough but having read and heard that passage we can immediately see and hear the repetition of words he uses throughout and in little pockets throughout the passage as well it's this wonderful passage of love and yet we can see through this repetition the individual strokes the layers that all thread into the entire passage itself he really is such a florid and beautiful writer. It is one of the perfect combinations of writing ability with a story that is so deeply rooted in society and the personal that makes this book a must-read. So, what would I rate this book? It's, it's curious, because I say it's a must-read, and yet I don't think I would read it again, if that kind of makes sense. I, I'm quite content with the one read, I must say. So I feel like it's a 4.2 because if someone came to me and said that this was their favorite book or that they had read it more than once, I, I would understand that and respect it because yeah, but I'm, I'm happy with the one I think. So you know what to do. Well, this week I have started to read or rather listen to a production of Faust by Goethe. And Wow, I must say, you know, I sort of heard a lot about the story through just, I don't know, you know, reading and, and writing and, and listening to people talk about books and whatnot. But the production value along alone is incredible. But the story itself is just, it's incredibly vivid and rich. And But this has really helped and elevated through the production and the performance to elicit the emotion of the play itself. It's, it's, it's one of those things I'm so happy for that audio productions just seem to be improving immensely to bring really top-notch content to our ears. So, kind of reminds me of this podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, you know, we have fun here. We have fun. So, <laughs> that's what I was reading this week. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it, as always. And, you know, feel free to head across to the website. There's other ways to support the podcast. But, of course, as always, just... Thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So today to take us out, I think 
a bit of Charles Brandreth, who is the English broadcaster and writer, and he has a little limerick for us. There was a young man from Peru whose limerick stopped at line two. 